Joel 2, 21 through 27. Joel 2, verse 21. I actually will read one verse before that, in verse 20, and start there. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion. And rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down from you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The inspiration. For the fictional world of Mordor in the Lord of the Rings trilogy was for J.R.R. Tolkien the Industrial Revolution. Tolkien viewed the over-reliance upon technology as the machine as stepping towards the domination of other people. In his day, he saw technology as bulldozing over the real world, and coercing other people's wills against their own desires. For him, in his fictional world of Mordor, he, he, he crafted this hateful realm, situated its black engines and factories and the overlord of Sauron, uh, invading the Shire as bulldozing the real world in which the Shire was that real world. Tolkien himself experienced the brutality of technology in the trenches of World War I. He went to the front lines as a second lieutenant. And when Tolkien describes the, the siege of Gondor in the series, he delivers the realism of the war that he experienced in the trenches. Catch some of these metaphors as I read some of the lines in which he describes the Battle of Gondor. He said, the fires leaped up and great engines crawled across the field and it was choked with wreck and with bodies of the slain 
yet still driven as by madness, more and more came up. Busy as ants hurrying, orcs were digging, digging lines, deep trenches in a huge ring. And soon yet more companies of the enemy were swiftly setting up, each behind the, the other and the cover of a trench, great engines for the casting of missiles. Now, Tolkien's inspiration for that siege came out of his own experience of the stench and the foul smells of the trenches of World War I. And as he looked at the progress of modern technology, he saw how dehumanizing it all was. The Great War was actually very demoralizing for Christians, too. If you had grown up in that era, you may have heard from your pulpits uh, preaching that would have led you to believe that the return of Christ was just around the corner. There was so much technological progress. There was the appearance of moral reforms throughout society. The church had a, 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 an equal place at the table of power. There was this appreciation and thought that perhaps this progress would bring in the kingdom of God. And instead, all of this progress brought in the great war. Instead of progress, it brought trenches, it brought machines, it brought absolute disaster. Now, I bring up all of this to help kind of open our minds to the kinds of things that Joel himself was seeing in a latter-day military invasion. It sounds very much similar to how Tolkien uh, observed the First World War. If you listen carefully to the descriptions that Tolkien gave us, listen to what description Joel gives us in chapter 2, verse 3. And you'll see these words on the wall. You can also follow them along in your Bibles. Fires devour before them, and behind them a flame burns. Before them people are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march on, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. The earthquakes before them and the heavens tremble. Joel sees these armies, collectively he calls them the northerner, verse 20, and he sees them, though, in spite of all of their strength, all of their power being picked up, as it were, and tossed into the sea, like a swarm of locusts, just blown into the sea and piling up, and their stench rising out of the sea. You know, it's very remarkable, it's very easy for us to to believe in the promises of modern technology. And we can forget that without the gospel, those who wield the technology are not capable of bringing peace on earth and goodwill towards men. As innovative as humanity is, nevertheless, our fallen nature takes over and progress is tainted. It is tainted with the lust for power the lust for wealth, and the lust for personal autonomy. We use technology as people to bulldoze the real world around us, to oppress others. And I lead this way in this sermon because in this text we see a major contrast 
that I see pointing to the truth if there is an eschatological end-time military power that comes into being, there is a greater power on the other side, and when Christ comes, He's going to bring the real world with Him. We desire the real world, and we use technology to create progress, but the only dominant power who has the capacity is Christ alone to bring what we so desire. Christ will maximally renew the visible world with His glory. When He comes, we will see a world infused with absolute glory and beauty beyond our wildest imagination. Joel 2, 1 through 11, we saw a prophetic judgment that was progressive over time. Each phase got larger and bigger and greater. Joel saw judgment striking at Jerusalem and then spreading to the nations and then filling the universe. And the progressive nature of judgment against Israel will indeed increase in scope through time, the like of which will never have been seen before, nor will be seen again, as Joel says. And the great day of the Lord will be maximal as it will involve the whole world itself. The agony of this coming great day of the Lord will be greater than Auschwitz, and it will break Israel. They will turn, they will rend their hearts, and they will call upon the name of the Lord, and they will see him whom they have pierced. And many will return to the Lord. Many outside of Israel will also turn to the Lord. With this judgment, there will also come renewal. No one knows the day nor the hour. We look into the future and we wonder, is, is it just around the corner? Is it even now in our own lifetime that this could occur? But no one knows the day nor the hour, not even the angelic host. And at the birth of Jesus, when the angels sang those famous words, fear not, for behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy what shall be for all people, they were at, a, at least thinking maximally of, of the great coming of the Lord in which all of these elements would be true. And so they said, fear not. And you can see these words in this text as Joel is, is communicating hope to his people, hope to people who are anticipating being destroyed. Hope in which he says in verse 21 and 22, he, he repeats himself and says, fear not, just as the angels said. And behold, I bring you glad, and, and we're, we're, they're called to be glad about what God is going to do, and then to rejoice in verse 23 over what God is going to do for them. Now, the angelic world does not know the day nor the hour on which this maximal expression of God's judgment will come, nor the maximal expression of His redemption you know, even the demonic host was confused about Jesus' coming. Jesus engaged with de demons and called them out of people. And they asked him before he called them out, they said, what have we to do with, what have you to do with us, 
O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Even the demonic host was confused about what was going on when Jesus came. No one really even saw the cross coming. Even the spirit world was looking for the day of the Lord in which they would be judged. They were anticipating that cataclysmic judgment to come. They were looking for even the effects of renewal, the angels looking for that renewal of humanity. But renewal will not come before there is a cataclysmic judgment for sin. And so the cross was crucial for the anticipation of the renewal. Nevertheless, the angelic host expressed the maximal hope for the recovery of humanity and the reclaiming of the world that has, been def- has fallen into sin and decay. And so when Christ came, they proclaimed, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. This was that maximal hope. And the greatest and fullest expression of Christ's coming will indeed come when he comes, he will bring with him a new heaven and a new earth in its maximal display. When when he comes, heaven and earth will become one. John in Revelation said this, he said, I saw a new city, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. Heaven and earth will be qualitatively new. In other words, when Jesus comes, he's going to bring the real world with him. The real world that we wish for, it's not going to be foreign to us when he does come. We will know how to live in a new heaven and new earth because it will be familiar to us. Because we have lived in a heaven and a earth. We have lived here. But it will be paradise. It will not be Mordor. It will be paradise. Now here we live on the edge, if you will, of Mordor. We encounter dead grasses and rotting reeds that loom up in the mist like ragged shadows of long-forgotten summers. We live in a land that's defiled, diseased, as it were, beyond healing. The hobbits who left the Shire to go on their quest to recover the rings and toss them into the, to the mountain, as they walked through those wastelands of Mordor, every step they took, they had this great longing to return home to the Shire. Every step through the wasteland increased their longing for home. They wondered to themselves out loud, will we ever make it home? Have you ever had that experience? I mean, not going to a mountain with rings. I'm talking about going about life, longing for a home, longing for just recovery of every one of us at some point has had wonderful memories that have been attached to growing up and and being in places where you've grown up. I'm sure of it. I personally feel very attached to the land of my infancy. I have great memories, shadows of joy that flood my soul 
every once in a while as I daydream and remember some of the pleasant experiences of growing up in rural Nova Scotia. I have those experiences, no doubt you do too, but I see in my mind, I, I, I reflect upon the beauty of seascapes, I see red dirt, I see rolling farmlands coming up to the, to the blue, deep blue, rich blue oceans. I remember as a child walking along the beach shorelines looking for hidden treasures that had washed up on the sea. Those were pleasant memories for me. I, I, I remember going with my family to small creeks, and, and, and I was just a young toddler, but we had little floaties on, and we were playing in the water. I have wonderful memories of those things. But every good memory that we hold dear in this life will pale in comparison to the joy that will be reserved for us in the new heaven and new earth. Taking time to reflect and enjoy those memories, take also the time to pivot and place by faith the expectation that one day we will see that again. God will bring with him, Christ will bring with him the real world when he comes. Our world will be renewed maximally both physically and also spiritually. We were created to live in an organic world. We're not going to be disembodied spirits that just hover and float for eternity. We're going to see a new heaven, a new earth, and we will live there, and we'll know all about it because we've experienced this one. We will enjoy the cool of the evening in which the Lord walks among his people, and we will enjoy sweet fellowship with him for we know sweet fellowship even in this world. When Christ comes, he's going to renew creation with vibrancy. Verse 21 to 25, I want to show you now, I've set up kind of this contrast between the old and the new, and Christ here, there's descriptions of renewal of creation that will be, they'll be vibrant. Verse 21 to 25, we see these uh, mapped out for us, we see uh, the locust army hordes in verse 20 have done great things, but there is no cause for fear because the Lord is doing great things. We don't have to worry about the, the, the wickedness in this world and the, the rulers and the principalities and powers of this world. They pale in comparison to the Lord and the King of glory. And he, in this text, we have three groups of people who are called upon to rejoice in what God is going to do for them. We see, uh, addressed in verse 21, fear not, O land. The land itself is supposed to rejoice. Uh, in verse 22, we have, fear not, O beasts of the field. And then in verse 23, there's another grouping. There is people, those who are in Zion. Verse 23, be glad, O daughter of Zion. Joel began his prophecy by calling these same three groups of people to mourn. Now here in this text, he's calling these three groups to, to rejoice in what God is going to do. 
And the atmosphere in this, these verses is one of absolute abundance. In verse 22, we see that there is going to be an, uh, an abundance of full yield, a full yield of the fig tree and of the vine. Verse 23, there is multiple usages of the word rain and abundance of rain and regulation of, of the rain cycles, that, that things will come at, at the right time and when they should come. Uh, there is uh, also the vats of wine in verse 24 that overflow and showing how there is an abundance here of blessings and God lavishing his, his, his joy and desire to bless upon this, this new heaven, this new earth, in, and we look at it maximally as coming our way. And uh, we look at the world, and yes, we can, we can recognize that despite the progress of humanity, that there, there still is a lot of retained beauty in the world, a lot of innate glory that can be seen. The heavens declare the glory of God. And if the beauty of this, this fallen world is, is to be expected to be increased, how, it's going to blow our minds. I know that, um, for example, in our own world, we have even just, I heard in the news this week, of seven states that are trying to negotiate the Colorado uh, River Basin to, to carve out water rights for themselves. And they're doing this because there's drought. There has uh, been a long-standing drought, and, and the resources are being depleted in that area. And now they're in deadlock, and, and, and according to news articles, the federal government might have to, unfortunately, step in and settle the matter for everyone. But how is the, you know, you think about the, the need for water. It's so essential for the welfare of our own lives, it's necessary for renewal. And this is actually precisely what God gives for renewal. He gives his rain. He gives it in abundance. What's remarkable to me is that we know scientifically that in this world there is no less water. There's no more water than there has ever been. When we talk of loss of water, what we're talking about is the interruption of the natural water cycles. And with rain falling, not just in abundance in a new heaven, there's going to be a regulation so that there's a steady falling of water at just the right time and at the appropriate amounts. It's going to be a remarkable renewal of the world when Christ comes because this world will be governed. We will see the governor sitting upon the throne. We will see him regulating his world, and applying rain just when we need it. I know that we uh, have not got a lot of snow this year. Uh, this is a conversation that I hear every once in a while from those who maintain our, our snow uh, removal. But the reality is, we need those snows to percolate and melt into the earth in order to bring uh, fruitfulness uh, in the spring. All of these things are by design part of our world. They get interrupted in this world. They will not be interrupted in the world to come. Joy will return. 
as trees bear fruit, the fig tree will blossom, the vine will give their full yield, it says in verse 22. I don't know if you've ever taken time to really think about how good we have it here, though. In spite of the deficiencies of our fallen world, we really, God, God designed a world to work well for us. <laughs> you know, a lot of the food that we eat was calculated to give joy to us. I, maybe you don't, you should take time to think about a banana every once in a while. You think about how easy it is to eat a banana. I mean, yes, it gets shipped to you, but if you, if you lived in a community, a, a, a climate where the, they were just on the tree, you could just pick a banana, peel it, and eat it. God is so good to us. He loves his people. And he provided us grapes. He provided us apples. I mean, all of these things are just glorious. Uh, Abby's family likes to tell the story of their great-great-grandma, Juliana Putra, who immigrated to America through Ellis Island back in 1911. She came to America from the Augusta Hungarian Empire, and uh, she and her homeland had always heard about a banana, but had never had a privilege to eat one. And I, I think, she, you know, coming through Ellis Island, she eventually came to the Philadelphia area, maybe in an outdoor market, she saw a banana for sale on a stand, and she wanted one. And she went up and paid for that, and then she turned up her nose at it. But then someone told her later that you're actually supposed to peel it first. <laughs> you think about it, though. Apples, bananas, nuts, grains, they simply grow to be harvested. Yes, we have to cultivate it, but still, even chickens, they just keep dropping eggs. And if you think about a chicken, they're super easy to pluck and a quarter, and you can eat everything in them. You can even eat their claws. I wouldn't recommend it. I don't, some people love them. But do you think about it? That just everything around us has the potential to bring us joy in this world. What a great God we have. And the imagery in this text of bounty and, and, and fruitfulness of creation, it's all through the prophets anticipating a coming new heaven and new earth a land in which we will know how to live. You don't have to worry. You will not be a dislocated spirit floating for eternity. And the imagery of beauty and fruitfulness uh, also appears in Isaiah 35. Listen to how Isaiah talks about this. He says that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Uh, Mount Carmel, a beautiful mountain in northern Israel, and Sharon, a, a valley area, just will be blossoming like a, like a, or like a, one of those uh, gardens that you go to on special, like uh, Longwood Gardens, you know, they'll be completely full of beauty. Now, verse 24 and verse 25, 
is probably one of the most meaningful statements in the book of Joel. And it has a preciousness, actually, very similar to that of Psalm 23, in which we hear the psalmist say in Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 24 to 25 says, uh, the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the table will be full, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil, and I will restore the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. That locust army and the future army that will come will be raised and have been raised by God, and that shouldn't surprise us, and it may in some ways shatter our expectation about who God is. God is not slavishly existing for our own personal happinesses. He doesn't live and exist that way. Rather, he lives for his own glory and calls us to enjoy him in happiness. And he loves to lavish things upon us, that is true. But whatever he allows us in this lifetime to lose will be replaced with abundance in the next lifetime. Here we, we, we in these verses, we have, there's like a, a bond, like a bond of commitment made by God which cannot be overturned. Whatever you thought you have lost, if you by faith believe in Him for the forgiveness of your own sins, you will find the replacement and overflow like you have never experienced in your life before. I will restore to you the years, the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Joel tells us that no matter what calamity that you have faced in this life, it may be that it is allowed by a sovereign heavenly father who is infinitely wise and yet will replace whatever you have lost with infinite joy. This is grace. There are many of us who have experienced years of fallowness in which we have walked away from God. There have been times and seasons and maybe even years of addiction to, to drugs or addiction to pornography or, or perhaps in your life you've experienced suffering of the loss of a child in miscarriage. You've, you've given of the, your time and you've been burdened with the care of aging family. You've experienced weeping in your life. You can know that all of those things are noticed by your Heavenly Father, and He will restore those years that the locusts have eaten. Christ will bring you into a world where the longings and memories of a better world will come true. All the longings, all the sweet memories of years gone by will be renewed in the new heaven and new earth. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed because the spiritual 
renewal has already begun. Verse 26 and 27, we see that Christ will renew the redeemed with eternal life. But this eternal life has already started. It started when the tomb opened up. In verse 26 and 27, we hear the hiss of shame. Verse 26 says, You shall eat plenty, eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame again. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Shame is that feeling when you know you're not what you ought to be. It's that feeling in which uh, you feel a bit contaminated. You feel outside of a group. You're not sure if you belong. That's going to be wiped away. Israel has never been a dominant world power on their own. Modern Israel is really an anomaly because they've been propped up by the finances and wealth of the United States. And nations that do not have organic or natural power don't have influence in the world. They, they are objects of, they're pariahs, they're shamed, they're, they're not able to court other people's favor. And the power that Israel possesses today is not organic it's a proxy power that's provided to them through the United States. What is remarkable about this text is that there's going to be removal of that inability because the presence of God will be in their midst. Verse 27. This is deliberate reminder to Israel of their experience in Mount Sinai. When they were at Mount Sinai, Moses had to go up the mountain to intercede for them because they had fallen 40 days into this new covenant relationship with God. And Moses said this, arguing with God, saying, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Yes, it is. The presence of God in the people of God is what makes them distinct from other peoples in the world. And the maximal expression of the presence of God will come in the new heaven and new earth when the dwelling place of God is with us. When Jesus was born, he was the foretold Emmanuel, or God with us but there was much more on the horizon. At the Last Supper, Jesus said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? See, the physical body of Jesus confused the disciples. They didn't really understand what was going on. Yet knowing him, Jesus is the basis of eternal life. You know, Jesus prayed before his crucifixion, 
that his disciples would be able to know the Heavenly Father in the same way Jesus knew the Heavenly Father? And this is what he said. It may, it may surprise you. Because he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How do we know the Father? It is through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That's how we have a relational knowledge of God. And if you understand eternal life as a relationship with eternal life that exists in the Father. Think about John 3.16 for a moment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is not just a quality of existence. It's a quality of relationship with God. And the seed of eternal life has been planted inside your hearts by the Holy Spirit so that now you, you sense and you have an awareness of a Heavenly Father. You desire and you love Him. That, doesn't, that comes from the Spirit giving you that. But it is also a deposit. It is like a... a a, a first step towards the maximal expression of this knowledge, one day you will see him face to face. This is the maximal fulfillment of eternal life, of, of knowing him. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ is not just for like having an insurance policy, like a fire insurance policy so that I can get out of hell free. If that's all that praying a sinner's prayer is for to you, you've missed it. It's to know our Heavenly Father and to enjoy Him forever. He is our creator, our sustainer, the one who lavishes the bounty of this world upon us. Eternal life is about eternal relationship and knowing our Heavenly Father. And this is all coming. So we live in a world of like corruption and disorder and progress has actually turned to destroy us. When Christ comes, he's going to bring the real world with him. You know, Tolkien and others who survived the Great War, well, they tried to make sense of all that they experienced. You can imagine going through that experience and even... The, the shell-shocked experience that people would have. But they saw very clearly what we don't see today is that progress does so little for humanity. Instead, it brings the horrors of Mordor to us. After returning to England from the front, Tolkien might have joined a lot of other restless people agitating for reforms. And, but instead, he recognized that the answer to evil is for Christ to bring the real world with him when he comes. Christ will maximally renew the visible world with his glory. He will renew creation with vibrancy. 
and Christ will also renew the redeemed with eternal life. Are you rootless? Are you unable to rest? Are you constantly looking for that which will satisfy you? Turn your hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will forgive you of your sin. He will renew you with the gift of the Holy Spirit progressively over time, and you have the hope of finding all that you've ever longed for in the new heaven and new earth. Let's pray.